listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the book of Acts, how Christians live. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com. You know, the Bible is the best commentary on itself, and today is no exception. We're going to look at Acts chapter 16, begin with me in verse 1 as we dive into God's Word. It's God's Word, not man's Word. Even though it was written through human instrumentation, it is God's Word, every word inspired, given to us from Almighty God, and it helps us. It's a compass. There's strength in God's Word. It keeps us from doing things we would otherwise do, helps us do things that we should do and stay away from things we shouldn't do. But more importantly, it helps us to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Everything in the Bible points us toward that aim, and today's no exception to that either. Acts chapter 16, as we're going through the entire book of the book of Acts, look at what it says here, beginning in verse 1. Paul, the apostle, came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek or a Gentile. He was well spoken of by the brothers in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, this seems at first to be contradictory to what we just read about in Acts chapter 15, where they had the council in Jerusalem where they're saying, some were saying you had to be circumcised in order to be a believer, and the apostles and the elders had reached this conclusion. They even wrote a letter, we're reading about it, heard about it last week again, and you can read about it anytime you look at Acts chapter 15, that circumcision was clearly not a requirement for salvation. So here, why is Paul requiring that Timothy be circumcised? Seems kind of contradictory. Hold on to your seat. Don't get all hot and bothered under the collar. As we said when we began, the Bible is the best commentary on itself, so we're going to see that in a moment, so pay attention, okay? Verse 4, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. That's Acts 15, the Jerusalem council that we talked about last time together. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, southeast Galatia. Remember the book of Galatians to that region, the region of churches there. When they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. Notice it says, we, because this is Luke, the physician who wrote the Gospel of Luke. He's also the author of the book of Acts. We see that in Acts chapter 1. So this is a first-hand account by the traveling companion of these people who are talked about here in the book of Acts. This is Luke recounting what transpired. So if you're ever wondering about credibility or accuracy, it doesn't get much better than this, humanly speaking. When you combine that with the element of the Holy Spirit directing Luke to write this, we know that we have a firm 
accurate account here, eyewitness account. Immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now it's interesting again, God had called us to preach the gospel to them. What does he mean, us? We don't have any account in the book of Acts of Luke preaching the gospel. And yet he says, God had called us to preach the gospel. You need to understand this for your own life. You might not be a pastor. You might not be an evangelist. You might not be a teacher. But God has called us in the body of Christ to preach the gospel. We are the body of Christ. Some people have big mouths, loud mouths like me. Other people are very quiet and soft-spoken, but they're stalwart, they're immovable, and they're dedicated. Some people give heavily of their finances because God has blessed them heavily in their finances. That doesn't mean that people who don't have financial blessing don't get to give. We all get the opportunity, and we're all challenged to give financially to the Lord. In fact, there's no area of life that can be safely withheld from giving it to God. There's no area of life that can be safely withheld from giving to God, including the area of our finances. But some of us are very adept at making money, and we're very selfless at giving that money to the cause for Christ. It doesn't matter whether you're a teacher, whether you're a servant, Whatever your gifting might be, whether you have a gift of mercy or compassion, we are called together, together to preach the gospel, to take the gospel into places and into the lives of people who need to hear the saving work of Jesus. It's all about helping people become more and more mature in their walk with Jesus. Can I get an amen for that? Do you understand that? Now, verse 11. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis. Samothrace is an island there. And from there to Philippi, the book of Philippians. See, this is the backdrop for all those great books in the New Testament that we read about. And from there to Philippi, which is the leading city, the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So once again, we see Paul and his companions going for the low-hanging fruit. They hear there's this place of prayer, So these are people who are predisposed to be worshipers of God. They're interested in God. And so Paul goes there and with his disciples, and they go there to look at ways that they can make disciples at your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family. You should look for the low-hanging fruit. The other day, I was getting a therapeutic massage because I have neck and I have back problems. And so I was going for a deep tissue massage, which was so deep afterward, I was sore the whole next day. It was that deep. And this was one of the best massages I ever had in my life. And the guy knew that I am a pastor. And I was trying to find out just by asking questions about his life where he was at. And he had to do another deep tissue therapeutic massage after me. Now, he had worked on me so hard with his thumbs and his fingers that he was sore after working on me. Because if you feel my back, it feels like a rock and it's not because of muscles, okay? And so he said to me after I was leaving, gave me a cup of water and said, hey, pray for me. I said, oh, you want me to pray because you, gotta, you have to massage people now after me? He said, no. I just would like you to pray for me. And I thought, wow, 
So I've been praying for this guy. His name is Steve. You don't know what massage therapy place he's at, so I can say that, okay? His name is Steve, and I want to ask you to pray for Steve as well and pray for God to use my physical illness that led me to this guy, that God would use what's happening here, my physical impairment, the need to get therapeutic massage, to lead Steve to the feet of Jesus. And if he already knows Jesus as his Savior, then to lead Steve to the feet of Jesus even more in deeper and deeper surrender. So would you do that? Would you try to remember to pray for Steve this week? I'm going back to see him again. Just a wonderful thing, looking for the low-hanging fruit in your lives, looking for the opportunities to bring Jesus to bear in whatever situations the people might be in, that God puts you in their path. God puts you in people's paths at work, in your neighborhood, in your family, and you need to be attentive and aware of those people and that you need to see them as opportunities to bring Jesus front and center into the conversation, okay? And this is what Paul was doing, so they went down to this river. Verse 14, one who heard was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. So she already was following the Lord to a certain degree. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, namely the idea of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. And after she was baptized, verse 15, notice baptism, and her household as well, notice the replication that's taking place here. She urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. He was persistent. And as we were going to the place of prayer, again, they're looking for the low-hanging fruit appropriately. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination or a python spirit or a pythonian spirit. That's what literally what it would be translated as, a python spirit. Needless to say, it was a spirit who gave her the ability to know certain things that are not naturally known, okay? A spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. This is a form of human spiritual trafficking, Human spiritual trafficking, where this girl is quote-unquote owned by other people and by foretelling the future in other people's lives, just because you get the, the future told doesn't mean that the source of that future telling is from God. In fact, it can be absolutely diabolical, and there's always a heavy price to pay in that. And oftentimes, one of the things that demonic powers will do is make a proclamation about the future and then try to work in events to make that proclamation about the future come about so that it looks like there was a true foretelling of the future. When there wasn't a foretelling, there was manipulation that tried to make it look like there was a foretelling for the purpose of gaining deeper and deeper control in an individual's life. So if you've ever gone to a fortune teller, that could have been the case in your situation. There's also clairvoyant, supernatural, demonic power that gives at times the ability to tell the future. You shouldn't seek that. You shouldn't look for that. You should trust God. It's strictly forbidden in the scriptures. So if you've ever done that, if you've ever gone to a fortune teller or sought, maybe you played with a Ouija board, Maybe you've gone to a seance. If you've ever done that in your life and you're a follower of Jesus, it would be a good thing if you've never renounced that to specifically renounce it, take it before the Lord like right now, 
Maybe you need to do it in deeper detail right after our time together and actually take it before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm sorry that I sought, I'm sorry that I sought wisdom and insight and counsel apart from your Holy Spirit. Because if it's not the Holy Spirit, it's an unholy spirit. Are we clear on that? And so you may have, you could have a stronghold, a foothold. Well, how do I know that? Because the Bible says, do not give the devil a foothold. That's written to believers. So a believer can have a foothold, diabolically charged, demonically charged. You can have a foothold because of something you did in your past. And if you have not specifically taken it before the Lord, ask him to break that chain. We're going to read about chains in just a moment. To break that chain, to break those chains, now is a good time to do that. You should never seek wisdom and counsel and insight apart from the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Does that mean I can't ask people for wisdom and insight? I didn't say that. What I'm saying is, if it is a godly person, you are ultimately seeking the wisdom and the counsel from the Holy Spirit, looking for God to confirm and to affirm through what they might say, through what the Word of God says, through what your spirit being inside, your spirit bears witness with God's spirit, whether or not something is true or false. But all of that needs to be guided by a fundamental desire to hear from the Holy Spirit and to renounce, reject, repudiate, walk away from, and totally reject any other spirit than the Holy Spirit. Clear? Okay. So this slave girl human spiritual trafficking, who made her quote-unquote owners a great deal of money through this python spirit. Verse 17, she followed Paul and us, Luke and Silas, the other traveling companions, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, Paul does not need the assistance of an evil spirit when he's filled with the Holy Spirit to accomplish the work of Almighty God. So this becomes a burr under the saddle. He turns and he says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they're not going to make money anymore because she doesn't have this supernatural, demonic ability to foretell the future. So they're going to lose their livelihood. When they see that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers, not knowing that they were Roman citizens. Pay attention. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore their garments off, tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. The Latin word for this is admonitio, from which we get the word admonition. So this is a little bit of the Roman attempt to motivate somebody, don't do that again. This is not the same as the 40 lashes minus one that Paul talks about. He talks about it here for example, in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four, he says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. The hands of the Jews. The Jewish people 
had this practice of if somebody was in their eyes committing blasphemy, we know that Paul never committed blasphemy, but the devout Jews who were rejecting Jesus thought that believing in Jesus was blasphemous. So they subjected Paul five times to the 40 lashes minus one, which is going right up to taking the person's life. And that was the Jewish practice. But here the Roman practice was to give an admonitio, a bunch of rods grouped together and to try to positively motivate through a little bit of negative reinforcement, try to motivate the people that they were doing this to not to repeat the same behavior. Then they throw them into prison, okay? Verse 23, when they had inflicted many blows on them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stock. So he wants to make sure there's no magic trick that happens here. Paul and Silas are taken to the inner part of the prison and their feet are put in stocks. Now, typically the stocks would have various holes in them. So you could, depending on the prisoner, you could make their ability to be comfortable very difficult because you could put their feet together into adjacent holes or you could put their feet wide apart depending on how much uh, admonitio, (laughs) how much you wanted to admonish them, how much you wanted to inflict difficulty on them. There's no indication that their feet were spread wide apart. That's not the point there. What The point that's being made here is that they're put in the inner part of the prison and their feet are in stocks and they're in big trouble. They're experiencing persecution. And this is the beginning of what we see in Acts 16 and Acts 17 and Acts 18, where there is opposition, there's persecution, and then there's vindication, and then there's validation. We're going to see that again and again, where the gospel is preached, there's opposition, there's persecution. The opposition goes to an deeper, deeper, deeper level of persecution, and then there is vindication, And then authentication, that the gospel is true, that this thing and the people who are preaching this thing, the gospel, cannot be stopped. It should not be stopped, okay? So, verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were worrying and whining. That would be the reversed standard version. See, these guys are being faithful to God. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. We're in Acts chapter 16 for Pete's sake, no pun intended. And they have seen God move powerfully, not only in their lives. I mean, they just got done, Paul just got done casting out this python spirit. They've seen God move powerfully. They've seen God deliver already. And yet here they are being thrown into prison after being beaten with rods. Now, in in your situation, in my situation, the tendency for us is that we would worry and we would whine and we would forget that the Israelites wandered for 40 years for no other sin than grumbling. That's all they did. That's all they did was grumble. And the grumbling was sufficient. Not one of them who grumbled entered the promised land. Now, the human tendency, your tendency and mine, if we're really honest with each other, we're really honest with God, is that we tend to categorize sins. Well, that's not really that important. Well, this is really important. Sexual immorality, big, big, big sin. Grumbling, not such a big sin. Gossip, not such a big sin. Winners don't whine. Whiners don't win. 
If you want to go far in your walk with Jesus, you need to begin to see your circumstances as God-given opportunities, like we're going to see right here in Acts chapter 16, the whole working of the Spirit of God allowing them to be thrown into prison is the very thing that ends up becoming a testimony. You must remember that when it comes to the work of God in your life, a setback is merely an opportunity for a comeback. All it is. Setbacks prepare the way for comebacks. Winners don't whine, whiners don't win. Grumbling is a sin, period. How serious is it that God would send the Israelites who grumbled into a wandering four-decade-long excursion only because they sinned by grumbling? You might find yourself in a circumstance right now where it's difficult and it's hard. You might be scratching your head. If it's not happening now, it's going to happen. If it's not happening now and if it's not going to happen in the near future, it has happened. How you respond to the circumstances God sovereignly thrusts you into does matter. It does matter. Now, the version of the Bible that we're reading, and most likely your version, because there is no such thing as the reverse standard version that I'm talking about, says something like this. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. That's what you do when you're spirit-filled. You see the world and you see your circumstances through the lens of Almighty God and you respond in supernatural, counterintuitive ways. You don't act like the world acts. That's the whole purpose, one of the fundamental purposes of the Holy Spirit. You will do things you otherwise would not do say things you otherwise would not say, think in ways you otherwise would not think, you will be transformed by the renewal of your mind through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Paul and Silas, again, being examples, not exceptions, being examples, not exceptions, being examples, not exceptions, they are showing us what spirit-filled living looks like. You might be able to throw me in prison. You might come against me with all kinds of weapons, but nothing is going to stop me from being faithful to my Jesus who took away every single one of my sins. When you really contemplate what God the Father has done for you through the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross, you will be so motivated to be faithful to Jesus, you will not even let a prison keep you from drawing near to God and worshiping him and singing with an attitude of gratitude for all that God has done. Spirit-filled living will cause you to do what you otherwise would not do, say what you otherwise would not say, and be what you otherwise would not be. Come on, people. It is time to be filled with the Holy Spirit in our country right now. We do not back down. In the midst of what's happening, persecution, we haven't seen persecution at all yet in the United States of America. This is persecution getting publicly beaten, publicly embarrassed, and then thrown into a maximum security prison situation for doing nothing other than leading people to the feet of the living and true God. How bad is that? That's a good thing to lead people to the living and true God. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, this is the way you behave. It's counterintuitive. You got financial problems? No, you don't. 
If that financial problem exists because you have not stewarded God's money that he gave you properly, then start stewarding the money that God gave you properly. Don't blame something on God when it's your fault. Okay? But at the same time, if you've been faithful to God, as many of you are faithful to God, giving to him your first fruits, tithing and doing above and beyond, and you have financial problems, the temptation is, well, I'm not going to continue to be faithful to God, giving to him first. Well, what you're saying is, I'm no longer going to worship God with my finances. That's dangerous territory, everybody. There is no area of life that can be safely withheld from worship to God. We can withhold it. We do it all the time, but that's not safe. You're walking on dangerous ground. You're walking in an immature way when you could be walking in a mature way. And God's objective, the great aim of the Holy Spirit in your life and in mine, in the life of every believer, is to make us like Jesus in character. More and more maturity that we reflect the goodness of God, the character of God, more and more as we age. Don't just get older, get better. Don't just allow yourself to get older. Settle for nothing less than becoming more Christ-like as you age. And so spirit-filled living causes us to look at our circumstances through the lens of Almighty God And we begin to do things we otherwise would not do, say things we otherwise would not say, think ways we otherwise would not think. And the byproduct of that, the overflow of that, is being a powerful, unstoppable witness for God. You don't know what your grumbling could cost the testimony of Jesus. You don't know what your faithfulness to God as a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit and praying and worshiping God when you otherwise could be complaining and whining, right? You don't know how your faithfulness to Almighty God could overflow in ways above and beyond exceedingly what you could dream or imagine into the lives of other people that God would actually write history, shape someone else's life, through your faithfulness. And it all comes down to understanding that the Bible is primarily a book of examples. The book of Acts is primarily a book of what spirit-filled living looks like. What can you expect God to do with your life when you make your ambition to be filled with the Holy Spirit? These are some examples here. You behave differently. And because you behave differently, people sit up and they take notice. Paul and Silas, verse 25, praying, singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were ignoring them. No. The prisoners are listening to them. Your coworkers are watching you. Your massage therapist is watching you, listening to you. Your family members are watching you. Your neighbors, they're watching you. One way or the other, you are being a witness of somebody somewhere all the time. You are being a witness to someone somewhere all the time. The prisoners are listening to them. And they're probably saying, what were these guys drinking? We know that this didn't happen in the state of Colorado or Washington, so we know that Paul and Silas were not smoking something funny. People in prison, naturally speaking, Don't do this kind of thing. But supernaturally, 
they do. Father, we pray right now for those who are in a real prison right now in persecuted places, that you would comfort them and strengthen them and encourage them and fill them with your Holy Spirit, that they would be able to pray, not give up, and sing to you for your glory. Right now, Lord, we ask that you would do that mightily throughout the nation, throughout those nations where persecution is especially prevalent. For your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen. Verse 26. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, meaning a bad earthquake, not meaning, hey, this is awesome, an earthquake. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. That would have been his penalty anyway, the death penalty if these prisoners escaped. Supposing that the prisoners had escaped, but Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Again, you're one of two types of people. You're either saved or you're lost. The jailer recognizes that he's lost. What must I do to be saved? And if you haven't yet asked that question, you don't understand yet that you are totally lost apart from the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The cross makes absolutely no sense if you don't really understand your sin and the righteousness of Almighty God, and he requires perfection, not politeness. God requires perfection, not politeness. Politeness is nice when you consider the alternative, right? But perfection is essential when it comes to God. Every single one of your sins has to be removed. And the way that happens, you got to be saved. You've got to give your life to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He comes in and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said to him, you have to be baptized. You have to be circumcised. You have to follow all of the Old Testament commandments. And you have to work your way into a right place with God. Again, that would be the reverse standard version. Their answer is simple, but simple does not mean insignificant. Simple does not mean insignificant. It's powerful. Their answer is this. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. That's it. Accept what Jesus did on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what we mean when we say you must have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He must be your Savior. It's not good enough that he was your parents' Savior or your pastor's Savior or your friend's savior, someone else's savior. He's got to be your savior. You're either saved or you're lost. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. So such a beautiful thing here to see while the jailer is caring for their wounds and washing away their wounds, God is washing away the jailer's sin. And the baptism, the external washing with water is a symbol of what spiritually had happened to him, that God, through Christ, washed away every single one of his sins. And what a clean, fresh 
feeling, spiritually speaking, that jailer must have had when he got up from that baptism. And what we see here again and again in the scripture is that when somebody gets saved, they get baptized. When somebody has their sins washed away, they want that proclamation to be public. They want that identification with Jesus to be public. How do you know whether or not somebody has really accepted Jesus by whether or not they've taken the plunge? How did you know whether or not somebody was really a devout Jew by whether or not they got circumcised? How do you know in the New Testament? How do you know whether somebody's really a believer by whether or not they've gotten baptized? Water baptism doesn't save you, but if you're really saved, you won't have a problem with water baptism. In fact, if you have a problem with water baptism and you're saved, there's a disconnect there in your next step of maturity, your 101 act of obedience and identification with Jesus which is baptism. We see it again and again. And once again, the book of Acts is a book of examples, not exceptions. When we see somebody giving their life to Christ, they get baptized. The Ethiopian eunuch, baptized. Cornelius, baptized. The jailer, baptized. You, baptized. What are you waiting for? You might say, I've pastored for a while. I've encountered people. They have a fear of water. They don't want to go under the water. If you will let God develop a fear of the Lord in your life, a healthy reverence for God, you won't care about any other phobia. A reverence for God, a fear of the Lord will overcome and compensate for any fear you might have of water. And you will thank me one day for being so biblical. I'm not being staunch on this, I'm being biblical. So biblical about black and white obedience to Jesus. See, if you're not willing to obey Jesus in the black and white teaching of Scripture, fat chance obeying him in the gray areas, the subjective areas that will inevitably come up in the course of life. You want clarity over God's will in your workplace, in parenting, in a relationship with another person? Those are gray areas where there's not necessarily do this, and do that and do that with specific instructions. That's what I'm referring to as a gray area. You have to be wise. You have to understand what way to approach a certain situation. You need wisdom from Almighty God, supernatural wisdom. Well, if you want wisdom in those areas, the quote-unquote gray areas, and you're not willing to obey God in the black and white areas of Scripture, you're complicating what should not be complicated. And one of the black and white teachings of Scripture is water baptism for a new believer, water baptism for somebody who says, Jesus is my savior, Jesus is my master, all of my sins have been washed away, not by the water, but by the blood of Jesus and my personal faith in him. You get baptized. We see this again and again in scripture. Verse 34, then he brought them up into his house. His house was nearby the prison or perhaps part of the prison as a jailer would be in charge of the prison, set them up in his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us 
publicly, uncondemned, meaning without a trial. Men who are Roman citizens, gulp, and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. And that ends the book of Acts chapter 16. And I have just skated on the surface. I haven't even delved in as deeply as I could about Timothy and the fact that he was probably 15 to 20 years old. I didn't talk very much in detail about why did Paul require Timothy to be circumcised when just one chapter earlier, this whole Jerusalem council thing, they were telling people that circumcision was not a requirement for salvation. I didn't even talk about that. Well, you all come back now, you hear? Because in our next time together, I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to encourage you, and I'm going to inspire you under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to have a totally different mindset about teenagers. Wow. To have a totally different mindset about young people. To have a completely different mindset about salvation through faith as a matter of undeserved favor, the grace of Almighty God. There's so much in the Word of God for us to look at and to meditate on that it takes a lifetime of study and All I'm really trying to do is encourage you to get into God's Word, to study it deeply, to submit fully to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life for one simple reason. Nobody who has ever resisted God has ever come out a winner. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. You can also invite Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.